Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that is shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. QBAC is a next-generation advancement solution that reimagines alumni engagement to increase major planned and principal giving. QBAC acts as a force multiplier for fundraisers, enabling them to focus on what they do best, developing deep relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. QBAC automates the qualification process beyond simple scoring to ensure that your fundraisers have the best prospects. QBAC also uncovers actionable insights about current and future prospects to help fundraisers develop personalized cultivation strategies. Start closing bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Hi, John. I am delighted to have you back on the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I think it was probably, it's probably been a little over a year or so since we had John here last time. And, uh, and then subsequently we invited you to be one of our contributing authors for the, uh, for the now new first edition of our new, uh, critically and carefully professional journal that we've got out there. And so I wanted to get you on here. And um, let you talk about what we wrote, what you wrote about. But before we do that, how about we uh, just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Thank you, Jason. It's great to be back with you on the podcast. And thank you again for inviting me to be a part of the journal. Uh, that was a great experience because it, it allowed me to think a little more carefully and critically about the work that we're doing during the pandemic. I'm John Fudo. I'm currently the vice Chancellor for University Advancement at UMass Lowell. I've been here for about six years. We're one of the five campuses in the UMass system, uh, but I have been in the nonprofit sector for about 38 years now, and 33 of those have been in higher ed. Uh, I've been in private institutions, public universities, uh, as I said, I've been in, in some other nonprofit uh, arenas as well. And so uh, it's allowed me not only to have a great career to this point, Jason, but more importantly, to be able to see all facets of fundraising and engagement. John, the last time we had you on here, I did want to ask you about this before we dived into the subject in the journal. Um, you had a publication that was coming out, and I think perhaps it's either been delayed or give me, give me an update on that, because that was the last conversation we had last time we were on here together. Yeah, Jason, I've been so fortunate to be able to partner with Case throughout the years on on some publications, and I've completed now my seventh book uh, for Case on advancement. And this one is specifically focused on how alumni relations and development shops can be better partners. 
Uh, we all know going back historically decades that there has been friction between alumni relations and development in many cases, especially in our country. And uh, we don't necessarily know why that exists, but I was able to reach out to about a hundred of my colleagues all over the world, and we talked about whether or not it does exist, why it exists, and what are other institutions doing about it, and what can we do about it to build better partnerships. And uh, this project for CASE is completed, but because of the pandemic, uh, CASE had paused right. a lot of its book publications. They did recently uh, produce the new CASE standards. And so hopefully they'll get back to publishing other books and uh, media soon. And so I'm hoping that this will be upcoming. Yeah, there, there were, I noticed, John, and I'm sure you can relate to this. You know, there was a book that I watched come out from one of our colleagues put out right in the midst of the uh, sort of the settling in of the pandemic last year. And that was probably the worst time in the world to be publishing anything, don't you think? Oh, it absolutely was. Yeah. But, you know, well, there's light at the end of the tunnel <laughs> and we're getting a lot closer to it, Jason. Yeah, yeah. So, John, um, in the uh, so for the sake of our listeners, so John is one of our contributing authors for the first edition of the, our professional journal called uh, Carefully and Critically. Uh, we want to uh, facilitate conversations from those who are sort of at the center of fundraising as well as on the fringe. I don't know which one we'll sort. Of, I don't know where we'll put you, John, uh, but um, but nonetheless, you agreed to be one of our first contributors, and you wanted to answer the question: sort of, what have we learned from the pandemic? pandemic. Uh, so without completely pulling back the curtain on everything that you shared with us in the article, we'll let our listeners uh, download that uh, for their benefit. But why don't you just give us a 30,000 foot view of what do you think we've learned? Well, I, I think the answer, Jason, is we're still learning yeah. from it. And, and we've had more than a year now to uh, go through this learning process. But I, I think it's safe to say that when the pandemic when the pandemic first struck, None of us had any idea how long this would last and what the impact would be. And I'll admit that I was one of those people who said, okay, let's slow down. Let's not make any rash decisions because we could be back in the office in a matter of weeks. Yeah. Uh, now we know that that wasn't the case, but it didn't take me that long to realize that we needed to shift gears. And so we started looking at a, a how we do the various functions within advancement in a pandemic. And that was an evolutionary process in that there wasn't a snap of the fingers, a flip of the switch, and all of a sudden we're doing something new. Uh, on the fundraising side, of course, that meant changing our approach from in-person face-to-face visits to virtual face-to-face -face yeah visits uh, to whatever extent we could keeping in mind uh, you know you you look at at these platforms now like zoom and teams and meets and everything else and a lot of us have become pretty proficient in those platforms but a year ago most of us had some experience maybe with skype but not a whole lot with uh, anything else and if you think about a lot of our major donors who maybe weren't as technologically savvy as some of us were, they were slow in coming to the Zoom plate. And so 
a lot of telephone calls ensued. Then uh, the, the virtual meetings began. And so we had to evolve on the fundraising side slowly but surely. Uh, on the engagement side, we really had to make that decision a little more quickly because we had an entire spring and into the summer yeah. and then into the fall of events planned. And so we were able right away to create an alumni virtual village that I do talk about in the article. Yep. Uh, and that was a really great way for us to keep our alumni involved and informed because it allowed us to get some prominent faculty and alumni to produce relevant content on things like the state of the economy, the presidential election, health and wellness, you know, all, all important topics at the time a year plus ago. Uh, we were also able to bring our athletic coaches to our alumni via Zoom. We were doing arts and crafts uh, for kids mm -hmm. so that all the kids that were now home from school, their alumni parents were able to give them something that, that would, that would uh, keep them busy. We did book clubs. Uh, this year we're doing a virtual reunion college, eight weeks of alumni uh, interactions and educational programs that our reunion classes are able to attend. And we're getting great response. We have for the past year, Jason, but especially with this uh, virtual reunion college, our alumni are now able to see their classmates on Zoom and be able to interact with them. And let's face it, some of them wouldn't have come back for reunion otherwise if it were in person pandemic or no pandemic right right so we really had an opportunity especially over those first few months of the pandemic to rethink and reimagine how we did advancement and we're still doing that today yeah so your article as well as dominique's article you, the two of you have the two center articles in the journal um, are both sort of asking yourselves questions about sort of what was learned and sort of where things will be going uh, forth going forward she's talking about special events in particular and john i think i think there's sort of a uh, I, I'm sort of picking up on a uh, I'm picking up on the notion that fundraising on the on the coming out of the tunnel, you know, coming out of the pandemic is going to perhaps be more exploratory work for a while for the reasons because we're going to be able to sort of step back and see some of the efficiencies that we were able to sort of gather as a result of what we did to sort of effectively make our way through the last year. Um, and sort of balance that with what we put back on the calendar, for example. So I'm sort of picking up on the idea that some people are not going to just, you know, they're not going to, they're not going to just hundred percent stick with the virtual events, but they're also not going to go hundred percent, you know, put everything back on the calendar. What's your thoughts on that? Do you think the work's going to be more exploratory in nature for a little while? Once I finally came to the realization several weeks after the pandemic started that that this is going to be a long-term issue. Yeah. Uh, I felt like it wasn't going to end at any point yeah. where we would go back to what we had considered to be normal. Yeah. So I really did then, Jason, and I believe now that uh, 
the way we do business has been changed forever. That doesn't mean that we won't go back to face-to-face visits. Uh, As a matter of fact, we're starting to do that now. But we're doing it in keeping with regulations where we've asked our staff to consider being vaccinated. Uh, We hope that a lot of our donors will be as well for purely for health reasons. But when we do ask staff members uh, to visit with donors, we want to make sure that both the staff member and the donor are comfortable with that face-to-face visit and that it's done with whatever the regulations of that particular state happen to be. If it's uh, wearing face coverings indoors, then so be it. And and uh, adhering to all the regulations on air travel as well. So sure, it's changed a bit and we'll get back to these face-to-face visits. But I also think that both from a stewardship and from a qualification perspective, I like Zoom. I like these platforms yeah. because it gives us an opportunity to reach out to more folks. I mean, uh, let's take each of those on a on the stewardship level to be able to talk to one of your donors uh, who, of course, if it's a true stewardship situation, you you must know that donor well at that point uh, because she or he has has made a financial commitment. And so you know them well enough that getting together once in a while on Zoom is probably pretty comfortable. It saves on the budget. I mean, we got hit significantly last year on both staffing and budget. I had two-thirds of my team laid off temporarily at one point, and our budget was cut by 65%. And it's going to be cut to some extent into uh, next fiscal year as well. So this is a cost-effective yet effective way of stewarding donors. On the qualification side, if you think about these discovery meetings, you're a fundraiser calling someone who you pretty much don't have much of a relationship with, and you're asking for a visit. So put yourself in that prospect's position. You know why you're being called. You know you're going to be asked for something through this visit, and yet you may not have the inclination to get any more involved than you might already be. And so to have to spend half an hour or 45 minutes or an hour in person with a fundraiser, whether it's over a meal or in an office or in a home, that can be a little intimidating for the prospect. But if it's still face-to-face but via a virtual platform, you, the donor, can be as comfortable as you want. You can be at home. You can be in the office Uh, you have a little more control over when the meeting ends because if you want it to end, you can say, that's about all the time that I have right now, and you click a button to leave meeting. Yeah. So we're finding that we're getting, my team is getting more qualification visits this year because of the fact that they can do them uh, via virtual platforms. What do you you think your team missed the most? What did they lose that... Or did they not lose enough to, um, obviously revenue hurts, but. (laughs) Well, our, our revenue has been good. Yeah. Okay. Uh, As I, as I said in the article this time last year, I was getting calls from colleagues and friends all over the country saying, Hey John, what are you doing? Are you, are you going to lower your goals for the rest of this year because of 
the, the pandemic and the impact that it's having financially. And we were in a really good position because our fundraisers had done a very good job uh, earlier in the year. So by the time we got to April, our fiscal year ends June 30th. By the time we got to April, we had already hit our annual goal. And we're going to hit it again this year. Yeah. So we haven't been as negatively impacted on the fundraising side, uh, certainly not at the top end of the pyramid. Bottom, we're absolutely impacted. And I think that's that's a national trend. I mean, we, we've seen donor count decrease in this country over the past decade, every year for the past decade. And now between the pandemic and tax laws that don't necessarily uh, make it beneficial for somebody who gives at lower levels because of the standard deductions that are available, you don't see those lower level donors to the same extent that you had in the past. Uh, but we're doing okay. And, and part of why we're doing okay, and then to answer your question about what do our fundraisers miss the most, I'm pretty fortunate to have a team of very experienced fundraisers. And most of them have been at UMass Lowell for a number of years. As a matter of fact, in our frontline staff, uh, only two of them are people that I hired. The others preceded mm -hmm. me here more than six years ago. And so what they miss the most is they miss those face-to-face -face interactions because their donors are their friends. Yeah. And they miss being able to sit down and have a meal with them or visit with yeah. them uh, and just to see them and feel the energy that you get when you're around a good donor who also happens to be a good friend. Yeah. Before I let you go, do you think that that we've so there's there's a number of authors in the academic space that have started to sort of research. And this was long before the pandemic. But they were talking about how um, workplaces using platforms like we're talking about with Zoom and the platform we're on here and so forth, that there's there's what's a thing there, there's what's called perceived proximity. And it's the ability to sort of create a perception of proximity that actually can be just as meaningful, if not more meaningful, if the relationships are strong and robust enough as literally being across the hall from someone. And I have to imagine if you've got a staff there, John, that have, have been working together as perhaps as long as they have, and if relationships are as strong as they have, then even the physical, this is what these authors, would, these researchers would suggest, that even the physical distance that that is absent, um, and perhaps this even sort of leads into the way that we could think about our relationships with our donors, if we can... If we can create perceived proximity based on quality of relationship rather than the literal proximity, uh, perhaps that could actually take us a lot further than we think it could. Um, and we wouldn't have to be hopping on airplanes all the time. And we wouldn't necessarily always have to be in the same office. Does that make sense? That it, it absolutely does. And I, and I do think that, that that is what is happening and what will continue to happen. And that's why I think our business has changed forever. Now, having said that, uh, there is such a thing as Zoom fatigue. Yeah. That is real. <laughs> and I have, a, a, I'll just tell you about one particular donor uh, who is in my portfolio, who I'm pretty close to. And this donor lives not too far from campus. And so uh, coming to campus is something that uh, this person has done many times or getting together either here or at the home uh, is something that uh, th 
that has been commonplace for us over the years. Yeah. But yet, when I invited this donor to a uh, to a meeting with some faculty members, uh, the response was, "I am all zoomed out, John. Right. Uh, I, I'd rather wait until we could do it in person." Yeah, and, and I do think that's real because keep in mind that we're not we're certainly not the only ones that our donors are connecting with via Zoom. They're doing their their business meetings via Zoom. Their family visits yeah. are. Through uh, through these platforms, uh, there you know they have other organizations that they're a part of that either meet or have events virtually, and so we're just regardless of how you look at it, we're one more meeting on their calendar, and and that's why I think that that the issue that I think is going to be important for us moving forward, which I didn't talk about in the article, so here's your exclusive, <laughs> okay. uh, Jason, for the for the podcast. Uh, I, I think donor centrism has taken on a whole new mm. meaning. Okay. Because because now we have to include in the idea of donor centrism, how does the donor want to be visited and engaged personally? Yeah. Is it personally as in person? Yeah. Or is it personally as in through through a virtual connection? Uh, and that's going to take us some time. You know, in many ways, it's exciting because it allows us to get to know our donors who we thought we knew pretty well. We now get to know them on a different level because we've got to find out from them what they're most comfortable with. Uh, and that's something that I think is going to take a little more time for everybody to develop because we don't know yet as we're just emerging from this pandemic and people are starting to venture out more. We don't know to what extent our donors will come out or will they will they be more hesitant? Still? Okay, so before I let you go, so we always talk about in fundraising, John, the, the fundraiser's sort of intuitiveness. That's one of the things we you know, when, when guys like you and me are hiring someone, we want that intuitiveness that they sort of, they can sort of pick up on those signals. So how do you think we're going to start picking up on those signals as to whether or not Mrs. Smith wants to meet on Zoom versus meet at the coffee shop? Well, when I asked Mrs. Smith about coming to campus for this meeting with faculty and she said, no, I'm all zoomed out, <laughs> you know, that tells me. Right. And and what we're starting to do, uh, we are very volunteer driven. Yeah. Uh, and part of that is because we know just from research that 90% of people who volunteer for any nonprofit organization give to that organization. Yeah. And so when we had just completed a campaign uh a comprehensive campaign at the end of last fiscal year right at the end of the pandemic and one of the goals of the campaign the non-fundraising goal was to enhance our volunteer efforts and our volunteer um count if you will yeah and part of how we did that was really bolstering advisory boards within not just our schools and colleges but within athletics, within uh, academic departments, within other organizations. And what we found, of course, is for the past year, we've been meeting with all of those groups virtually. Well, now that we're starting to emerge from that, uh, we now are setting up this next round of meetings, most of which will take place in the fall, as both in-person and virtual. And so that will help us learn 
what our alumni want when it comes to that type of engagement. Yeah. Because if, if we have a board of 30 people and we say we're going to meet on campus Thursday morning at nine o'clock and 10 people show up and 20 connect virtually, yeah. then we know that the virtual engagement is still preferred for that particular group. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating time to be in fundraising. I think all, a lot of what we're talking about is just an expanding, exploratory sort of toolbox of tools that fundraisers can get comfortable utilizing. Um, John, thank you again. Just uh, as the publisher of this new new uh, new journal, uh, it's really exciting for us, and I'm really grateful that you were able to contribute to that. You provided us with really really great content. For the sake of my listeners, please make sure to go onto our website and download that. I'll put I'll put a link in the show notes. John, if somebody's listening to our conversation, perhaps they're interested in following up and getting a copy of one of your books or something else. What would you? How would you suggest that they reach out to you? Sure. Well, they can find me on Twitter at John Feudo, J-O-H-N-F-E-U-D-O. I'm on LinkedIn as well. And you can also email me at John underscore Feudo at U-M-L dot E-D-U, UMass Lowell, U-M-L dot edu john it's always been a pleasure i look forward to being in boston at some point and buying you lunch that sounds great to me jason it'll be good to see you in person have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read in this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals these same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition to avoid this all-too-familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.